Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm going to send that alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. Who pretty one look? Talk to the roof. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's got his tail and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. Especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of, of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. This is part two of That Bastard Bruce Burrell. If you haven't listened to part one and you want any of this to make sense, we suggest you push stop and go back and listen to episode 171. In part one, we covered the 1995 mysterious disappearance of 74-year-old widow Dottie Davis. Dottie was close friends with con man Bruce Burrell's wife, Dallas, and had been on her way to visit her when she was last seen. Two years later, mother of three, Kerry Whelan was kidnapped in Parramatta, and a $1 million US ransom was demanded for her safe return. The Whelans also had close ties to dodgy Bruce Burrell. This episode, we detail the investigation into Kerry's kidnap and the long road to justice for the Whelan and Davis families. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our internationally celebrated first season that, to quote the New York Times, was a thing that existed and and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only episodes about even more bloody mongrels and stinking bastards. Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. 
We're still in lockdown and recording separately, but that may change next week. Yeah, look, I'm not sure I can go back. I have a new condition that I've named lockdown Stockholm syndrome. I'm not sure about going outside again. Yeah, yeah, all those germs. People and going to someone else's house. What even is that? I don't remember. I don't think I've ever gone to anyone's house in my life. I think I think I might have been born in this house and I've just been in this house ever since. And uh, that's been well, my whole life now. And that's where Tara should be. And that's where I belong. They, they should actually board up the doors and windows and set the fucking thing on fire. Yeah, and put a big red X on the door. Yeah, X for excellent. Oh, I meant an S for schlumper. Schlumper? (laughs) Schlumper pride, motherfucker. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Receiving the ransom note about his wife Kerry's kidnap knocked the wind right out of Bernie Whelan. According to the book Lady Killer by Candace Sutton and Ellen Connolly, Bernie felt the world as he knew it crumbling and falling beneath him. He wondered if right at that moment Kerry was tied up or gagged, terrified or in pain. He felt powerless and confused, racking his brain to try and imagine who on earth would want to do this to his wife. Despite the ransom note's explicit instructions about not contacting the popo, Bernie wisely called the police. They were already investigating Kerry's disappearance, so it was logical that he would tell them about such a substantial development. As he read the two-page typed ransom note over the phone to Detective Duncan, the detective was taken aback by how long it was. Most ransom notes are concise and straight to the point, but this one waffled on forever. Yeah, look, he probably initially meant to make it by cutting out letters and gluing them onto a piece of paper, but it would have taken too long and there's not enough glue in the whole world. The fact the ransom note asked for the one million in US dollars was also unusual and made the police wonder if Kerry's kidnap was part of an international operation. Plainclothes detectives were dispatched to the Whelan property in Currajong immediately. Unfortunately, no DNA evidence was left on the ransom note, the envelope or the stamp. The head of the major state incident group, Rod Harvey, and Detective Sergeant Dennis Bray took charge of the investigation. The task force was given the name Bel Air and was comprised of 23 detectives working on the Kerry Whelan kidnap case. They also called in specialist units, surveillance teams, hostage negotiators, the dog squad and radio technicians. Since alarmingly, the majority of women who are murdered are killed by their current or former spouse, the police had to consider Bernie as a suspect in Kerry's disappearance. Detectives grilled Bernie for hours, asking him every question imaginable about Kerry and their marriage. But his genuine grief and fear made them believe he was telling them the truth. And nobody they questioned had anything negative to say about the Whelan's marriage. Yeah, it wasn't a rocky marriage at all. The police asked Bernie if he had any enemies or had ever been threatened by anyone. Bernie told them, I've employed thousands of people going back 20 to 30 years and you can't help upsetting some people. I've been threatened by unions and opposition companies, but nothing recently. Detectives also had to consider that Kerry was involved in staging her own kidnap and ransom, but the Whelan's oldest child, their daughter Sarah, had a life-threatening bowel condition and was due to have a major operation in three weeks' time. Everyone who knew her knew that Kerry would never have left voluntarily when Sarah was due to have the surgery, so the staged kidnap theory was ruled out. One potential suspect did emerge early on. Bernie's oldest son from his first marriage, 
37-year-old Trevor resented his father and Kerry, who he blamed for the breakup of his parents' marriage. According to the book Lady Killer by Candace Sutton and Alan Connolly, Trevor blamed Kerry for his mother Helen's alcoholism and untimely death. He was especially disgusted that his dad had started seeing a woman who was only two years older than him. Trevor had threatened Bernie with a knife during a violent fight about it. After this altercation, Bernie cut him out of his will. At his mother's funeral, Trevor had told a friend, one day I'll get even with him. After sending the children away to stay with a close family friend, police moved into the Whelan house to set up a control room. They wanted to ensure the operation was secret, so they established another command centre away from the police station at the nearby Royal Australian Air Force Base in Richmond. The less people knew about Kerry's kidnap, the less likely news of police involvement would get back to her kidnapper. The clandestine task force, Bel Air, started investigating all their leads. Bernie's US connections, his business associates, the Whelan's social circle and Kerry's bank records. As Kerry had said she was on her way to a beautician's appointment when she disappeared, police canvassed all the beauticians in the Parramatta area, but none of them had an appointment for Kerry Whelan on May 6th, the day of her disappearance. Kerry's credit cards and bank accounts hadn't been used since May 5th. That's always a bad sign. Yeah, it is. Police searched the Whelan house and Kerry's diary for clues. They interviewed Bernie's oldest son, Trevor Whelan. Initially, he seemed like a good suspect, but he had an airtight alibi and was soon ruled out as the kidnapper. Meanwhile, Amanda Minton Taylor, the Whelan's horse trainer and nanny, was unsure whether or not to tell the police about the man who had visited Kerry a few weeks before she was abducted. Kerry was upset afterwards and asked Amanda not to tell anyone about his visit. Now, worried that this man may be connected to her kidnap, Amanda decided to break her promise to Kerry and tell the police. Detectives, of course, wanted to know every detail she could recall about the man. According to the book Lady Killer, Amanda told them that he was about six foot and pretty solid with a fair complexion. His hair was sandy red, thinning and collar length. He spoke with an accent, but I'm not sure what it was. I believe it's called a wanker accent or pompous ass. Hmm. Kerry had said he was an old family friend. The police pressured Amanda to remember his name and she eventually recalled it was Bruce. Bernie, having not slept since his wife was kidnapped, felt like his brain had been scrambled. He couldn't think of anyone named Bruce who fit that description. The police got Amanda to look through family photo albums. Eventually she found the man in a picture and said, That's him! The picture she pointed to was from a tennis day hosted by the Whelans in 1989 for employees of Crown Equipment. The man Amanda pointed out was standing next to advertising guru John Singleton and his then-wife, 60 Minutes journalist Liz Hayes. Bernie grabbed the photo album to take a closer look and frustratedly exclaimed, That's Bruce Burrell. Oh, come on, Amanda. He's like a big teddy bear. Amanda said, yes, Bernie, but this guy was like a teddy bear, like a big, cuddly, roly-poly teddy bear. His hair was a bit gingery, a bit blondy. James was home too. He saw him. Bernie told her, It couldn't be Bruce Burrell. For God's sake, Amanda, we call him the gentle bear. When the detectives quizzed the Whelan's 11-year-old son, James, about the man who had visited his mother a few weeks back, he pointed to a framed group photo hanging on the wall from the tennis day and said, that's him. He had also pointed out Bruce Burrell. 
James was quite the fancy car buff and told police about the Jaguar sedan XJ6 with white seats Bruce had driven that day. Kerry had told James not to tell his father about the visit as well. Bernie Whelan was confused and worried. Why had Kerry told Amanda and James not to tell him about Bruce's visit? What secrets was his wife hiding? With their best lead yet, the task force began to investigate Bruce Burrell, but they knew they had to be discreet about it, for Kerry's sake. Some sneaky subterfuge was in order. Bernie told police Bruce owned a farm called Hillydale in Bungonia near Goulburn in New South Wales, around a three-hour drive from Sydney. Plainclothes officers were sent to the area to find out more about the gentle bear Bruce Burrell. Being a large multinational company, Crown Equipment had made plans over a decade earlier about paying ransoms if an employee or their family members were taken hostage. Bernie was able to get the $1.25 million in Australian dollars ransom money from Crown Forklifts in 24 hours. An armoured van with a police escort had picked the money up from the Commonwealth Bank and driven it to Bernie's house where it was put in his safe. As directed by the ransom note, Bernie submitted a notice about a white Volkswagen Beetle to the public notice section of the Sydney Daily Telegraph newspaper. The kidnapper was supposed to make contact with Bernie within the next three days to give him further instructions. Bernie and a team of plainclothes detectives waited anxiously for the call. Recording devices had been placed on Bernie's mobile and landline. According to the book Lady Killer, negotiators had coached him how to behave when talking to the kidnappers. They told him, you must remain calm. Most importantly, you've got to ask for proof of life. You want to speak to your wife and you must insist on hearing Kerry's voice. Bernie's Mercedes had also been customised with tracking devices and recording equipment so he'd be ready to deliver the ransom. In the dead of night, officers surrounded Bruce Burrell's property in Bungonia and watched him drinking beer alone with his dog, like he'd done every night in the year since his wife Dallas had left him. His dog drank beer? All Australian dogs drink beer. What does your cat drink? Schnapps? No, he drinks white Russians. He's not a European badger. Detectives scoped out Bruce Burrell's house, but there was no sign of Kerry Whelan. Vangonia was a rural area with a tiny population of 35 residents and they were noticing unusual activity. The surveillance teams told the locals who stopped to ask a made-up story about being in town to bust up a drug ring. When the police ran a check on the number plates of Bruce's Jaguar, they were surprised to learn the plates belonged to a stolen Suzuki Vitara, which raised several questions. First and foremost being, why? <laughs> yep. They also discovered that his prized grey Jaguar had been stolen from a car dealership two years earlier. Still unsure if Bruce was involved in Kerry's kidnapping, surveillance officers watched the next morning as he drove to a service station in his muddy 1993 Mitsubishi Pajero GLS four-wheel drive. It was two-tone in colour, with the main colour being Hanover Green, and it had a bull bar and a running board but no roof racks. The two-door Pajero was a pretty uncommon car. In many Spanish-speaking countries, Pajero means wanker. Ah, oh, thanks for that, Pajero. How apt. At the service station, Bruce bought a copy of the Daily Telegraph newspaper. Which Bernie's response to the ransom note was in. Exactly. The next day, police arrested Bruce for the stolen car and number plates. They did so to enable Task Force Bel Air to do a cheeky, sneaky search of his property for signs of Kerry Whelan. 
Donning gloves, scientific officers broke into Bruce's house and searched the place. They hoped to find enough evidence to get a magistrate to grant a formal police search. So they did an illegal search to get enough evidence to do a legal search. Yes. But, like, it didn't really matter as officers found no trace of Kerry Whelan. But it wasn't a complete waste of time. They found several guns of varying calibres, a shit tonne of ammo, and an empty chloroform bottle in a metal gun cabinet. Chloroform is always suspicious. Yeah, look, it does have other uses apart from nefarious ones. Like, um, it's used as a solvent in the building and paper industries and in pesticide and film production. But, you know, unless you're working in those industries, having it is incredibly suspicious. The search of Bruce's house also produced a drunk dog who barked at a Canon typewriter, which was the same make used to type up the ransom note. And the dog wasn't really drunk. Bork, bork. I love you, man. Bork, bork. Typewriter. They don't really say bork. They do. That's how dogs bark, don't they? They, It makes a bork sound. Bork. Bork. I don't know. I think I know more about dogs than you do. Right, yeah, because you like read a book about. I it. saw one on television. Yeah, just one. A cartoon one. At the police station, Bruce was charged with receiving a stolen vehicle, driving it while unregistered and uninsured, and with having number plates calculated to deceive. Bruce was pissed off and wouldn't admit he knew the car was stolen. He was also charged with supplying alcohol to an underage dog. Bork. No, he wasn't. <laughs> Thirteen days later, Bernie Whelan still had not heard from the kidnappers. Everyone was worried that Kerry may already be dead. She knew Bruce and could identify him, so the chances of her coming out of it alive were very small indeed. Police gathered the equipment and the manpower needed for a full-scale raid on Bruce's property. On May 20th, a police convoy left Goulburn and made its way to Bungonia, As 20 vehicles rolled through the tiny town, residents watched, their mouths agape, thinking it might be a terrorist attack or maybe just the rapture. Finally. Finally? The townsfolk asked, what the fuck? An officer replied, don't worry, it's just a training exercise. In response, the resident muttered, bullshit. When the convoy pulled onto Bruce's property, according to the book Lady Killer by Candace Sutton and Alan Connolly, A portly, red-faced man was coming through a side gate, bellowing, his arms flailing. What the fuck is going on here? The man screamed. What the fuck do you think you're doing? Officers explained why they were there and handed beetroot-faced Bruce the search warrant. As he read it, steam sprouted from his ears like his brain was boiling. At no point did Bruce ask the police what had happened to Kerry, which is quite damning. They searched his house, the hay shed, and an old slaughterhouse that was also on the property. That slaughterhouse sounds ominous. It was ominous, Tara. In it they found a large mincer and the detectives looked at each other wondering if it had been used to dispose of human remains. Upon further inspection they found it was covered in dirt and rusty and obviously hadn't been used in decades. Items seized in the search of the property included the Canon typewriter. Bought? That's a dog. Yeah, no, I figured. I mean, it it doesn't sound anything like a dog, but I know you well enough to have figured out that that's what you were doing. The chloroform bottle, 22 garbage bags of paperwork, various sizes of ammunition, a large fuck-off crossbow, and several firearms, including Bernie Whelan's .223 Ruger rifle. 
Oh, the one Bruce borrowed and then said that some dodgy prick had stolen out of the boot of his car in Redfern. Turns out Bruce was indeed the dodgy prick. Oh, I couldn't have guessed. They also found a Yamaha quad bike stolen from Bruce's neighbour's property six weeks earlier. The quad bike thief had nicked three cases of beer from the shed at that time. There was no sign of the three cases of beer. By then they were in Bruce's tummy. And his dog. Well, his dog wasn't in his tummy, but the beer was in the dog's tummy too. No, I don't know if a dog would actually like beer. Bort. It's not bort, it's bork. Bork. See, I don't even know how a dog barks. You're right. Uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) Trust me. I was pretty confident I was right. I just didn't feel the need to rub it in. Police had uncovered evidence that both Bruce's vehicles, his fancy grey Jaguar and the green Pajero were stolen. They arrested Bruce and charged him with six car and firearm offences and confiscated his vehicles for testing. See, Bruce had developed a whole routine when it came to stealing vehicles from car dealerships. In 1993, he'd taken the $45,000 Pajero for a test drive. The inexperienced car salesman had let him do so without photocopying his licence because Bruce claimed to be a close friend of the manager's and the manager was not in the office to verify this. The agent did, however, insist on going along with him. Bruce told the agent that he was going to pick up his wife, Julie, from her clothing store in the city so she could check out the car too. After circling the block she was apparently supposed to meet him on a few times with no sign of her, Bruce was getting agitated. He was squinting and muttering to himself. Where the bloody hell is she? As he scanned the footpath for his imaginary wife. Acting increasingly annoyed, Bruce asked the car salesman to jump out of the car and go up to Jane's office to get her. The salesman had reservations about doing this, but as Bruce was apparently close friends with his boss and he might get in trouble for not being accommodating, he reluctantly agreed. The salesman went to the top floor of the building Bruce had pointed to but couldn't find Shane's office. By the time he realised he'd been had, Bruce, like a fart in a hurricane, was in the wind and had driven miles away in the brand new vehicle. In late 1995, he did pretty much the same routine when he stole the grey Jaguar from New Rally Motors in Artarman. The police interviewed Bruce about the car thefts while he was being held at Goulburn Police Station and he was his usual truth-allergic self. A piñata of lies. With a pompous accent of no discernible origin designed to make people believe he was rich and well-educated. The piñata isn't big enough to hold them all. That's a hot air balloon full of stinky lies. Oh, yeah, a jumping castle. Bruce claimed a man named Tony, who he met at the pub, had given him the $140,000 Jaguar. There was no transfer of paperwork or rego or anything. Uh, In fact, when pressed, he said that he didn't even know Tony's last name or his address. So they weren't close. Nah, just like give you a Jaguar at the pub close. Oh. Bruce said he was supposed to give his trusty mate Tony $25,000 for the car the next week, but Tony didn't show up to the pub to collect the money. That's how you got your car, right, Barney? Yeah, we don't even have car dealerships here. You just go down the pub and someone will give you a Jag. It's so convenient. The number plates on the Jaguar belong to a stolen Suzuki Vitara. Police had seen pictures of the vehicle when searching Bruce's house but couldn't locate the actual car. They they wondered if it had been used in the murders. The MO of the theft was the same and the driver's description fit Bruce. Tubby pompous ginger bastard? 
That's the name of your fourth album. <laughs> Bruce's version was that he bought it from a woman whose name he didn't know for 5800 in 1993 and had sold it to someone else whose name he didn't know in 1996. Buying cars in Australia is such a casual affair. No need to lay out your formal jorts. Oh, it's the only time I get to wear them these days when I'm buying cars, get receiving jags in pubs. After the media reported on the charges against Bruce, a car dealer from Orange in New South Wales contacted police. He said he bought the Suzuki Vitara from Bruce in December 1996 for $7,000 and had sold it in early 1997 to a woman in Sydney. Since it had been on sold before Kerry was kidnapped, police figured the Vitara was much like the street I lived on in 1987, a dead end. We used to play cricket in it. Bruce was now also charged with receiving and disposing of the Suzuki and ordered to appear in Goldburn Court on July 30th, 1997. While under arrest on these charges, Detective Alan Duncan interviewed Bruce about the kidnapping of Kerry Whelan. According to the book Lady Killer, he found Bruce Burrell jovial, polite and very accommodating. Bruce calmly explained his connection to the Whelans and how it grew from a business relationship to a friendship. He mentioned that Kerry Whelan and his ex-wife Dallas had met at a company Christmas function and hit it off, which led to more socialising between the couples. Bruce was retrenched from Crown Equipment by Bernie in 1990. When asked about it by police, he played it down to not seem bitter. Bruce admitted he had recently dropped in unannounced at the Whelan's rural property to try to see Bernie. He said he was hoping to get some more work off Bernie, but wanted to speak to him about it himself. He mentioned he and Kerry had a coffee and a chat and said he had not arranged to meet her on May 6. He denied the conversation had become heated or of having any knowledge in relation to Kerry's kidnapping. He told police he couldn't have been involved as he was incapacitated on that day. He explained, I had a sciatic problem from an accident I had had about 16 years ago and it came back on the 2nd. It progressively got worse over the next week. He said he spoke to his doctor on May 2nd and told him, Laying down or sitting down are absolute bloody murder. The podcast? Oh, I heard it's a bit shit. Brucey said he spent May 6th in bed suffering from his sciatica. He claimed he was in pain for the next week and was unable to drive as far as Sydney during that time. He also claimed that he'd bought the chloroform to use as a solvent to remove melted fabric from a heater. Sure he did. Bruce allowed police to take DNA samples. Due to his calm and confident demeanour under questioning, some of the detectives thought that he wasn't involved in Kerry's kidnapping. Bruce was let out on bail to await court over the vehicle and firearm charges. Freezing temperatures and heavy fog impeded attempts to search Bruce's property. It rained relentlessly, making the ground a sea of mud. Working in a grid pattern three metres apart, the team searched for any freshly dug earth or incongruous objects. Two cadaver dogs took up the lead as teams searched through dense wooded areas and around dams. A police plane and helicopter also searched from above when the weather allowed. Divers searched the dams, often having to crack the surface layer of ice to enter the water. Bruce would sit on his porch with his dog, drinking VB and watching the police search his property like he didn't have a care in the world. Sometimes he'd put on a show of mateship by offering police a beer. Probably offered beer to the cadaver dogs. Bork! 
At 7.20am on May 21st, while police were searching a remote area of his property, Brucey put on his ninja outfit and snuck off via a back route on his quad bike. Wait, he has a quad bike? Yeah. Then why did he steal the neighbour's quad bike? Because you can never have too many quad bikes. Brucey went to his neighbour Philip Broadhead's place and borrowed his car to drive to Goulburn. At 9.21am, mistakenly believing calls from public phone booths couldn't be traced, criminal mastermind Brucey made a phone call from a phone box outside the Empire Hotel in the main street of Goulburn. He called Bernie's company Crown Equipment and said to the secretary who answered the phone, Mrs Whelan is okay. Mr Whelan must call off the police and the media today. Tell him the man with the white Volkswagen will be in touch in two weeks. Then he hung up. The next day, Task Force Bel Air decided to speak to the media. Journalists converged on... Pol- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Police HQ in College Street, Sydney. The throng of reporters were given the basic facts of the case and they appealed to the public for information. Wanting to speak to anyone who had seen Kerry on the morning of her abduction. Hundreds of people called Crime Stoppers in response to the police press conference. People rang in claiming to have seen Kerry all over the country and psychics called to share their inaccurate visions of false hope. Oh, that is so cruel to the victim's loved ones. Oh, God, I hate it when they do that. The police got Bernie to pre-record a public appeal for begging for information on his kidnapped wife. Eyes full of tears, he finished by looking into the camera and saying, Kerry, if you can hear what I'm saying, I want you to know that we all love you and we'll do anything to get you back. But most of all, don't give up. By this point, the authorities believed it was unlikely Kerry Whelan was still alive. We'll be back with the conclusion of that bastard Bruce Burrell after this. Barney, I have but one question. Yes, Tara. What time is it? It's true crime nerd time. Hey! True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Amanda Blackburn, and she wrote to us about the true crime book Murder in the Adirondacks. (laughs) That doesn't sound real. Murder in the Adirondacks, an American tragedy revisited by Craig Barandon. It doesn't matter how fast I say it, it still doesn't sound like a real world, but I did, I did look it up. Also, the way you say it makes it sound like three words. Adirondacks. And she writes, Hola, Barney and Tara. This is Amanda, abroad from the great state of New York. Oh, I love a good broad. Oh, yeah. I recently read a book that I thought was the tits, so I figured I would share. The book is called Murder in the Adirondacks, an, imagi- an American, I can't say American, no, 
An American tragedy revisited by Craig Brandon. This is the true story about the murder of the young woman Grace Brown at the hands of her boyfriend Chester Gillette over 100 years ago. This story really hits home as it occurred only a few hours from where I grew up. The Adirondacks, if I'm pronouncing that right, which I'm pretty (laughs) sure I'm... Actually, I don't even know anymore. You can't be. Well, the Adirondacks, Tara, are a beautiful (laughs) mountain range that every person should see and learn how to say. It It is sad that such a lovely area was the backdrop of such a heinous crime. The book uses letters that the couple exchanged along with many other sources to establish the young couple's relationship. Ah, the old art of writing letters. Yeah, you have to use letters to write letters. You have to write letters to get written back to, yeah. Well, that too. It is amazing how much emotion the letters convey. Get fucked. That's, that's, that's emotion. <laughs> You're a fucking cunt. Don't darken the doorstep again. Yeah. But you never wrote me a letter. <laughs> <laughs> I did fucking too write you a fucking letter. You just no. don't remember because you were pissed. Oh, reading letters. I get letters. I write letters. You never sent me a letter. <laughs> it is amazing how much emotion the letters convey and anyone can sympathise with Paul Grace's situation. It is sad because as you read the book, you can see how things might have been different if the events that occurred then occurred now. I like that the book gave the background of the victim and the murderer along with the recollections of people involved with the case. From the investigation all the way through to the apprehension and eventual execution of Chester. The author was able to use Chester's jailhouse diary as a source which also adds a glimpse into the head of the murderer. Overall, the book is very well-researched and gives a reader an idea of how crimes were investigated way back when. P.S. Thanks for being such amazing weirdos. All of us other weirdos appreciate it. Hey, weirdos, your night. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. That book is Murder in the Adirondacks. <laughs> I'm still pretty sure you've got that wrong. An American Tragedy Revisited by Craig Brannan, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Hello, the world. We are They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney Eck. And I'm Sadie Eck. And we are sisters that want to tell you about lesser-known murders. Our cases are always compelling, maybe even a little scary, with just enough banter to keep it interesting. You can find us at theywillkill.com. Or anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you there. See ya. Things have been very tough for everyone this year. And we're dealing with issues we couldn't have imagined. There's everything going on in the world at the moment and the way this year's panning out having a negative impact on your mental health. Are these unprecedented circumstances stopping you from achieving your goals? Have you had about as much as you can take and you're just not quite sure what to do about it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy, and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. 
and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. You can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You can get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave the house. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be speaking with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as depression, anxiety, LGBTQIA matters, grief and self-esteem. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. And you can check out the tons of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of that bastard, Bruce Burrell. The press soon cottoned on to the police search in Bungonia and descended on the area in droves. Bruce spoke to reporters, falsely claiming that he was just one of Bernie Whelan's associates and that's why his property was being searched. He said he wished the Whelan family the best and hoped for Kerry's safe return. According to the book Lady Killer, Detective Sue Whitfield saw Bruce on the news and called Detective Bray. She told him that two years earlier she'd investigated the disappearance of Dorothy Davis and one of the suspects was her neighbour, Bruce Burrell. That bastard. This was news for Task Force Bel Air, and now they started to look into the cases as though they were linked. They tapped Bruce and his family's phone lines, and they recorded several suspicious conversations, including one where Bruce was trying to set up an alibi, but he didn't actually admit to anything concrete. The media attention on the Whelans inspired copycats to call Bernie, demanding a ransom and threatening to send him Kerry's severed body parts if he didn't pay. Assholes. I know. After going over Bruce's property with a fine-tooth comb, the search was expanded to include the park bordering Bruce's property line. The book Lady Killer states, The large rusted sign at the gate between Burrell's property and the Bungonia State Recreation Area bore an ominous warning. This park contains deep holes and shafts with concealed entrances. Please take care. As Bruce had commented several times before, it was a great place to hide a body or two. The search team did their best to scour the rough terrain, but rain, freezing conditions and fog hampered their efforts. They searched cliffs, thickly wooded areas and abseiled down over 42 deep mine shafts. On June 13th, Bernie Whelan announced a $500,000 reward for information leading to his wife's safe return. 22 garbage bags of paperwork had been collected from Bruce's house during the police search. Detectives were instructed to collect every document, every notebook, every scrap of paper there is. You can leave the bloody toilet paper, boys, but bring everything else. Due to the sheer volume of documents, it took officers a long time to process all the paperwork before finding a cryptic note in Bruce's handwriting on the back page of a full scap pad. It read, 1. 
has been K. 2. No P. 3. Letter within three days. 4. Nothing until received. 5. Stress 2. They cross-referenced this list with the ransom note and found them to correspond to the points in it. K stood for kidnapped, P meant the police, letter within three days was the one in which he planned on giving further instructions. Do nothing until the second letter is received. Stress two, no police involvement. No P. (laughs) No P for you. This (laughs) note was a huge development in the case. In bag 13, police found another list in a small notebook, again in all caps. So this one said, number one, collection, two, advertisement, three, waiting, four, how to proceed, five, pick up, six, cover all. Again, when cross-referenced with the ransom note, police were able to deduce that collection stood for picking up Kerry. Advertisement was the ad Bernie had been instructed to put in the Sydney Daily Telegraph newspaper. Waiting corresponded for wait for more instructions. How to proceed meant the instructions on the ransom pickup. Pickup was obviously collecting the ransom. And cover all, they imagined, stood for covering up the crime. These notes, which formed the basis for Kerry Whelan's ransom note, would later become known in evidence as the dot point notes. Investigators also found a detailed note on how to deep clean a vehicle. Bruce had thoroughly cleaned both his vehicles and no DNA from Kerry or Dottie was discovered in either of them. Ten weeks after Kerry was kidnapped, Bernie Whelan took his three kids on holiday to Port Macquarie. Over Chinese takeaway, he tearfully told them that he didn't think their mother would be coming home. In contrast to the lavish life she'd led with Bernie, Kerry's upbringing had been a frugal one. Her parents, Leo and June Ryan, were working-class Catholics who were married in 1956. They then bought a three-bedroom weatherboard house in Castle Hill, northwest of Sydney. Kerry Patricia Ryan was born on January 28, 1958. She was a tall, shy child. She and her little brother dressed in second-hand clothes and hand-me-downs. Kerry grew up to be a confident woman with a sharp wit. After high school, Kerry, who'd always had an affinity with children, got a scholarship to Oak Hill Catholic Teachers College. Two years into her studies, 21-year-old Kerry met 41-year-old Bernie Whelan at a Ford car dealership in Parramatta. Despite his material success, Bernie was unhappy in his marriage and left his first wife Helen soon after meeting Kerry. According to the book Lady Killer, Bernie had been raised on a dairy farm and left school at 13 to work full-time. As an enterprising 16-year-old, Bernie bought a hay baler and later a bulldozer to build roads and dams for other farmers. 21-year-old Bernie married his first wife Helen in 1959 and continued to work his way up in industrial equipment companies. In January 1966, he and a colleague convinced large American forklift company Crown Equipment to hire them to start an Australian branch. With help from advertising guru John Singleton and his criminally catchy jingles, the company grew. There's nothing like a crown for picking shit up and putting it down. Bernie worked hard and travelled a lot, which affected his marriage. After Kerry got together with Bernie, she dropped out of college and went on business trips with him instead. Kerry fell pregnant in 1980 and they got married soon after. Back in Bungonia, Bruce, the slick as a fresh dog turd, accepted an invitation from Current Affairs TV show 60 Minutes to do an interview to save face and tell Australia his side of the story. He called super agent Harry M. Miller to ask him to represent him. 
Harry M. Miller, who would go on to be the agent of every Big Brother contestant in Australia, had standards and refused to represent the likes of Bruce Burrell. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. You look at his client list and you're like, oh, yeah, that is a big burn. The 60 Minutes team brought two cases of VB beer to Bri Bruce and his dog and make him loosen up. Bork. Woof! In the interview, Bruce threw himself a pity party about how hard having his property search was on him. Oh, poor Brucey. Won't somebody think of the Bruce? Nearly a year after Kerry was kidnapped, Detective Bray wondered if new technology would enable the police to see Bruce or his vehicle on CCTV footage in the vicinity of the Empire Hotel car park Kerry was last seen leaving. After scanning the footage over and over again for 12 hours, Detective Bray saw a car the exact same model as Bruce's green two-door Bajero pull up in front of the hotel at 9.38am on May 6, 1997 with just the back end visible. Another camera filmed Kerry leaving the car park and walking towards the Pajero. 45 seconds later, the Pajero drove away with Kerry in it. The police had initially assumed Bruce had driven his Jaguar to pick her up, not the Pajero, and had been looking for the Jaguar on the CCTV footage. As the number plates weren't visible in the Pajero footage, police couldn't say for sure it was Bruce's. 1,640 Sydney area residents who drove the same make and model car were questioned, but none had been in the area at the time. On October 22, 1998, media swarmed the courthouse as Bruce arrived at Parramatta District Court to face counts of car stealing and weapons charges, including stealing the Jaguar and the Pajero and Bernie Whelan's rifle, as well as possession of a prohibited fuck-off crossbow. He made a surprise guilty plea to avoid further scrutiny and was sentenced to two years and six months. On April 1st, 1999, while in prison, Bruce was told that detectives were arresting him for the kidnap and murder of Kerry Whelan. Bruce was surprised as he was convinced that he'd committed the perfect crime and gotten away with it. Well, it wasn't really perfect. He never got paid the ransom. Yeah, well, you know, don't let that stand in the way of him telling himself he's great. Police showed Bruce their evidence, the CCTV footage of his vehicle, the ransom note and his dot point notes, the Canon typewriter, the phone call to Crown equipment from the phone box in Goulburn and the chloroform bottle. Bruce replied to all of their questions with no comment. The Director for Public Prosecutions later dropped the charges, stating that there wasn't enough evidence to convict Bruce. The Whelan family and police working the case were devastated by this news. Bruce, on the other hand, was chuffed. He released a statement to the press saying, I am very pleased with the decision. I am innocent of all charges. After he was released from prison on April 17th, 2001, Bruce Burrell made another statement saying that he'd sue the DPP for malicious prosecution. And, of course, he said he wanted compensation. For the extraordinary damage this prosecution has caused to both myself and my family, the police have shown complete failure to properly and efficiently investigate the crime. Six months later, an inquest into the disappearances of Kerry Whelan and Dorothy Davis was announced for May 27, 2002. Bruce was to be the principal witness. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, Bruce refused to answer 93 questions about the disappearance of the two women during the inquest, which isn't a good look. No, he may as well have answered guilty to them all instead. Yeah, look, that's what I hear when people say no comment under questioning. It's exactly what I hear. 
The inquest declared Kerry Whelan and Dottie Davis to be murder victims. According to the Morning Bulletin, the New South Wales State Coroner concluded the inquest by saying that there was a reasonable chance of convicting Bruce Burrell for the murders of both women. Following the results of the inquest, in September 2002, the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions announced an ex-officio indictment against Bruce for the kidnap and murder of Kerry Whelan. Even if a magistrate has found during the committal proceedings that there is insufficient evidence to put a defendant on trial, the Director of Public Prosecutions may file an indictment called an ex-officio indictment against a person and that person must then stand trial. Bruce, of course, pleaded not guilty to the kidnap and murder of Kerry Whelan. The initial court date was pushed back due to Bruce requiring heart surgery. To try to figure out if he had a heart? The results were inconclusive. They would have been. Bruce Burrell was now living in a garage under his sister Tonya's home in North Narrabeen, Sydney, after losing his Bungonia property for failure to pay the mortgage. Reporters staked out the place, hoping to get a glimpse of Brucey, who had become a recluse, only leaving the garage to go to his new job as a garbage truck driver or to buy more beer and sickies. Yeah, that's not exactly the kind of job a fancy-pants wanker wants to have, is it? Late at night on weekends, drunk local teenagers would do doughies out the front of Brucey's place, yelling things like, Where did you bury the bodies, you cunt? The cunt did not answer. (laughs) On October 18, 2002, the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions announced another ex-officio indictment against Bruce. This time it was for the murder of Dorothy Davis. The first trial for Kerry Whelan's kidnap and murder ended up in the jury unable to reach a verdict, which resulted in a mistrial. This was tragic news for everyone except Bruce. It is notoriously difficult to prove a murder charge without the victim's bodies being found, of course. According to court documents, the prosecution in the second trial for the kidnap and murder of Kerry Whelan put forth that Bruce lured Kerry into his car on May 6th after organising to meet up with her when he dropped in at the Whelan's property weeks earlier. Motivated by greed, they believe that he went to the Whelans that day to kidnap Kerry but was foiled when Amanda the babysitter and Kerry's son James were home too. They argued that the ransom note was meant to be left at the Whelan's house at that time. Because it was posted at least a day after Kerry's disappearance, the warnings about not contacting the police were too late because the family had already notified the police about her going missing. The ransom letter was consistent with having been typed on a Canon typewriter. Bruce had a Canon QS100 typewriter, but the Daisy wheel and ribbon cartridge found in it were conclusively shown not to have been used to produce the ransom letters. Well, it's easy enough to change a daisy wheel now, isn't it? It is. The Crown argued that Bruce murdered Kerry soon after abducting her. Due to the lack of physical evidence in his vehicles, the prosecution believed he subdued her with chloroform while she was in his car but killed her elsewhere. After nine years of investigation, an inquest and two trials, Bruce Burrell was finally found guilty of the kidnap and murder of Kerry Whelan. Bruce was sentenced to life with no possibility of parole, plus an extra 16 years for the kidnap charge. Outside court, Bernie Whelan told reporters, Bruce Burrell was my friend. He was welcomed into my home. He met my children, cuddled my children. Then he betrayed me in the worst way imaginable, killing their mum. Bernie announced a $50,000 reward for the recovery of Kerry's body. Lithgow Correctional Centre is a maximum security prison northwest of Sydney. 
It's a very cold and windy place, a perfect home for the cold and windy Bruce Burrell. John Travers, one of the vile excuses for a human being who raped and murdered Anita Cobby, was his neighbour. The granny killer John Wayne Glover had been living there too, but hung himself in his cell the year before Bruce arrived. Bruce was a model prisoner, working in the textiles shop, making sheets for hospitals and shrouds for morgues. It took going to prison to make him finally get another job. For this, he got $50 a week pocket money to buy cigarettes with. Dorothy Davis's murder trial began on Monday, August 6, 2007. Bruce wore a gold tie over a crumpled white shirt to court because he's fancy like that. Due to his financially dire situation, Bruce was represented by a legal aid lawyer. The Crown case was that Bruce Burrell decided to murder Dorothy Davis to avoid paying back the $100,000 she had loaned him. He should have just told her some dodgy prick had stolen it out of the boot of his car. According to court documents, the prosecution put forward that it was Bruce, not Dallas Burrell, who had invited Dottie over to their apartment on May 30th, 1995. Dallas was at work that day and Bruce had the apartment to himself. They believe he invited Dottie over to kill her and told her that Dallas would give her a lift home so that he didn't have to dispose of Dottie's car. After luring Dottie over, he subdued or killed her and then put her in his car. There was an internal staircase in his apartment which gave access from the house directly to the garage, so it would have been really easy for him to put Dottie's body in the car without being seen. Bruce had made a sudden and unexpected trip to his Bungonia property for a few hours. His mobile phone records show before coming home to Lurline Bay. The next day he went to Bungonia again, a five-hour round trip. The prosecution stated, The Crown case is, he probably hid the body on the property on May 30th and came back the first thing in the morning to finish disposing of the body. His mobile records support this account of his movements and broke his alibi that he was at a workmate's birthday lunch in Sydney the day Dottie vanished. On Monday, September 17th, the jury returned with a verdict and found Bruce guilty of the murder of Dorothy Ellen Davis. The book Lady Killer states of Dottie's daughter's reaction... As the word guilty rang out, Marie Dawes half rose in her seat. Tears filled her eyes and she bit on her fist to stop herself from shouting. She stood up and mouthed the words, you bastard, at him. Brucey showed no emotion as usual. Now 55 years old, Bruce was sentenced to 28 years on top of his previous life sentence. Outside court, Marie told the media, Dottie Davis was a loving mum and a grandma. She was a loyal sister and trusted friend. No verdict can ever give us the peace that we so desperately crave. It'll only be when we bring her home and bury her with the dignity that she deserves that we will truly be able to be at peace. Dottie's son, Lessel, stated, We hope one day that my children and I will be able to lay her to rest. I guess the good news is the bastard will die in jail. According to the book Lady Killer, a few weeks after the verdict, Dennis Bray and Nigel Warren were formally recognised for their exceptional work on the Burrell investigation when they received commissioners' commendations. The 23 members of Task Force Bel Air were also awarded a unit citation. Kerry's husband, Bernie Whelan, died in 2015 at the age of 77 after an eight-year-long battle with dementia. He had found love again and married a woman named Deborah 16 years earlier. Bernier continued working as the Managing Director of Crown Equipment, retiring in 2003 after 42 years. 
According to the Sydney Morning Herald, he loved his model aeroplanes, his six kids, his two stepkids and four grandsons. At the time of Bernie's death, Kerry and Bernie's son Matthew said, The uncertainty will always be a bit of a burden. As Dad and I spoke about many times, if we could have a choice of keeping Bruce in jail or finding a body, we'd say finding a body. It was definitely something that weighed on him. I think him getting unwell in later years was a reflection of what had happened to us over many years finally catching up with him. Kerry's children still hope a bushwalker or someone will find Kerry's remains in the Morton National Park one day and they will be able to lay her body to rest. On August 4th, 2016, convicted kidnapper and double murderer, 63-year-old Bruce Burrell died from liver and lung cancer. He never once admitted his guilt or showed any remorse for the years of pain and grief he put the Davis and Whelan families through. Even when he knew he was dying, Bruce still refused to disclose the location of Kerry Whelan or Dottie Davis's bodies, despite the police begging him to. What a bastard. What a complete and utter bastard. I still wonder what Bruce said to Kerry to get her to meet him in Parramatta on the morning of May 6th. Yeah, nobody will ever know for sure, but it may have had something to do with the joint birthday party she and Bernie were throwing. Oh, yeah. The despicable bastard took all his secrets with him to the grave. What a story. So tragic. He had nothing to lose. Why? What would motivate someone to not... I guess he didn't want to, you know, he, he... Just wouldn't admit guilt. Ugh. All right, Tara, I have a question for you. Yes, Bunny? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Okay, but first I have a question for you, Barney. Sure. Have you ever done a spot of streaking? Have I ever stripped off all my clothes and run naked across a crowded area, tackle bouncing all the way? Yes, have you? No. Have you? <laughs> what do you reckon? I'd say it's a big no from you too. Yeah, it's a bloody gigantic no. This is where we differ from a 26-year-old Adelaide resident named Nathan Roberts. According to news.com.au, Natho got his nudie run on during the 2009 Adelaide Plains Football League preliminary final and happened to knock himself unconscious and end up brawled naked on the field in the process. Whoa. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if the game was boring or if they'd just drunk their weight in tinnies, but Natho's mates dared him to take off all his clothes, streak across the oval and do a naked cartwheel in front of an audience of a thousand people while the football game was in play. Natho told the Daily Telegraph, Oh, I said I'd do it for a gold coin donation. Then there was 50 bucks on the table, so I had to do it. It seems Natho ended up knocking himself out by not fully committing to the cartwheel portion of the challenge. He said, Oh, mid-air, I changed my mind. I half landed on my foot and went face first into the ground. After Natho slammed headfirst into the dirt, his unconscious body was left spread-eagled on the football field as the football game continued being played around him. <laughs> Natho's a bit of a dickhead. Certainly is. Eventually, paramedics came and carried him off the field on a stretcher. Natho wasn't seriously injured, and his mates reckoned he'd earned the 50 bucks, even though he'd had a birthday suit cartwheel fail. A lot of people who've watched his streaking prowess online proclaimed Natho a bloody legend and some kind of hero. But that's not how the president of the Adelaide Plains Football League, Brad Bush, sees the incident. 
Bushy told Adelaide now, Oh, they've made him out to be a celebrity, but he's a clown. There's about a thousand people there, and a lot of them were kids. That was the disturbing thing. I went out there and put a rug around him, and I told him after he came too that he was a bloody idiot. Asked whether or not Natho would be up for any future streaking endeavours, he replied, I like a bit of attention, and I'd do it again, but this time I'd up the price. Hey, Natho. This brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Jazz Guy Number One from the United States, Mini Me Mammum from Sweden. Oh, and Nicole Guy. We'd also like to thank the wonderful Lorraine for all the work she does running the Facebook group with me. Or, well, for me, some days. She's bloody brilliant. She is. Hey, Lorraine. You know who else is awesome? Our patrons. We love them. We love them so much that we've been holding monthly giveaways. Our October prize is a Bloody Murder 18 by 24 Film Noir Fine Art Print. I like this so much, I'm at me wall. For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our patron program, so thank you to Al. 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 Thank you, Al. Thank you to Tanya Noreen. Isabella Moen. Anne Blaine Wooten. Pernilla McGrory. David Hammond. Nicola Everson. Hey, Nicola. Brandon Mawson. Stephanie Johnson. Hey, Winnie. Neil Faber. And Rodney Kavaris. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. That's, that was a good fortnight. You're all awesome, and we want to um, give you all Barney hugs. A thank you especially to the, the new patrons who paid annually, which is nice. <gasps> yeah, that's a new thing people can do. Yeah, you get, a, you get 10% off to do it, so yeah. it's well worth doing. If you would like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice, there's a PayPal donate button there too. Yeah, when you do that voice, it always makes you cough afterwards. You can do it. <clears throat> no, I'm all right. <laughs> you just hurt yourself every time. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, our IMDB listing, or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay, just five stars and bork, bork. Hey, baby, <laughs> would still count. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us continue on our slow, waddling journey towards eventual world domination. <laughs> you can follow us through our Facebook page or join our fantastic Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes and links to our fabulous threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, so I had an interesting day the other day. Did you? Yeah. You know how, like, I'm becoming less and less inclined to leave the house? I mean, I go for a long walk every day in the park. And I was coming back from that, and I noticed in front of me there was, like, a guy just wearing a singlet and and no shoes, and he was ginger, and he was practising his karate kicks and punches in the middle of a public footpath while smoking a cigarette. Yeah, look, it's not entirely unusual, but I was a bit like, is he going to kick me in the head? No, he didn't. Awesome. So then I keep going and I round the corner and this guy just like standing there looking intensely into my eyes and he meows this really long, hello, at me. And I just go, hi. 
and like continue on my journey thinking like maybe I should just go home because it's just like getting weirder and weirder and I feel like maybe there's some LSD kicking in that I didn't know I'd taken. Uh, so None of this is unusual for the area in which you live in, which I will not <laughs> mention the name of. Well, well, it's just strange that none of them were shooting up at the time. Um, so then I went to the supermarket and um, I was going to get some mushrooms, but there was this woman kneeling in front of the box of loose mushrooms. And so I was kind of, I was going to reach around it because I was getting sick of waiting. Are oh, you going to do I the realized... reach around? Mm-hmm. You're going to do the reach around for some mushrooms? I was going to reach around for some mushrooms, but then I realised that she was picking each mushroom up individually in her hand squeezing it and then dropping it back into the box of, of the loose mushroom. No, you shouldn't do that. No, squeezy, squeezy mushroomy in, in global pandemic. No. So I was like, no. you know what? I don't think I need any squeezy, squeezy global pandemic mushrooms today. Um, uh, so I got my other stuff and went home and I was like, that was just too too much weird in like a 10-minute space. I don't, I didn't like it. I only, you only like that kind of thing if you deliberately taken drugs to feel that way but when it's reality it's like mm, where does it end yeah anyway someone suggested in our facebook group well, well uh, a friend suggested that um when i walked past that ginger guy smoking a cigarette and doing his karate moves in the middle of the footpath i probably got pregnant <laughs> that's how you get pregnant apparently yeah i'm gonna have me a ginger karate baby that'll come out smoking a cigarette in nine months time so this is guy. He's just died. He had a heart attack. That's right. not very funny. But yeah, that's, there's more to this joke than that. And and he's oh, wearing no, a re- he's wearing a really nice black suit when he died. Mm-hmm. And he's it is in the funeral home. And his wife's there, and she sees him in the black suit lying there, getting ready. And she says, "Well, look, he does look very nice in his black suit, but um, his favourite colour was blue. So I prefer for him to be buried in a blue suit." Here's a blank check. She passes it to the, the, the funeral home dude, the mortician, and yeah, says, really look, can you get a really nice blue suit for him? Money is no object. Just I want him in a really nice blue suit. And the mortician says, sure, come back tomorrow. And she comes back the next day, and there he is, lying in this beautiful blue suit with this slight chalk um, coloured um, pinstripes on this blue suit and he looks very nice and it fits him perfectly mm-hmm. and she says oh thank you so much um yeah and uh yeah I you know I hope the money covered it you know well the blank check covered it and he said well actually I didn't even use it here you can have it back because what a- actually happened I had another guy come in who was the exact same size as your husband and um, he had this really nice blue suit on. And I said to his wife, would you prefer him to be buried in black? And she said, actually, I would. So what I did is I just swapped the heads. Oh, <sighs> not where I thought that was going. I've got another joke for you too. Yeah, is it shorter? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that was pretty good, that one. It wasn't right. bad. It wasn't like... Great. It was all right. I, I appreciate your effort. Well, let me put it that way. I, I watched this documentary on how they put ships together. Yes. It was riveting. Oh, no. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Yeah. You know what? It won't be. We can tell you that right now because that's like what yeah. we do. That's Jog exactly on. what we do. 
If you think what we do shouldn't exist, then you mightn't want to listen to it. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple, really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, you know, my mum always said, you know, if you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything at all and get fucked. <laughs> No, she didn't say That's that. Awesome. She didn't say that beginning bit, just the last bit. She just told you to get fucked. I um I changed on my amplifier. You know you can name the ports? Mm-hmm. I named one get fucked. So when I turn it on, the amplifier says get fucked. Oh my god. See, that's the level of maturity that I've come to adore from you. It took me a half an hour to program that in. And, and, <laughs> Time well spent, sir. You only get I, one life. We're not on this earth for very long and you've got to use it wisely and I think that was a good example. Well, I called the children and afterwards one at a time and said the amplifier's got a message for you. <laughs> <laughs> and what did they say? Oh, no, I just went, Ugh. Oh, daddy. In the dead of night, of night, <laughs> night. <laughs> In the dead of night, officers... Are you a goat? No. Yes. <laughs> Yum. Fuck. I had to. <laughs> goat swearing. It's like goat yoga, but like less stretching. There's goat yoga? Yeah, there's goat yoga where you do uh, yoga and like goats come and headbutt you and stand on you and shit. I don't really understand the attraction, although I guess goats are cool, but I don't know quite why it's meant to help. Do the goats do yoga too? No, the goats just try and fuck with you while you do yoga. I'd like to watch that. Yeah? I wouldn't like to be involved. Uh, I saw I saw it on some one of those housewives shows that I've been like medicating myself with since eternal <laughs> lockdown started. Just um, uh, YouTube it. I'm sure there's some footage. Okay. Yeah, straight to the spank bank, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the sheep one. There's someone in our Facebook group who has five dogs, and I want to be there right now. And there's another one that has a little, little midget horse that's allowed in the house, a little miniature horse, and I want to I want to pat the horse and then I want to share some cereal with Baby it. Baby goats are cool. I want the little horse to sleep in my bed. Yeah. Baby goats yeah. are cool. Especially when they wear pajamas. <laughs> oh, so that's cool. It. I don't want to do it. I don't want to. That's it. We're going to shut down the podcast and put all the time we put into podcasting into watching footage of baby goats in pajamas and then do some yeah, goat yoga. pretty much. These crime stories are depressing. It... Yeah, I know. They're actually far less uplifting than a goat in pajamas while you're doing yoga. Like, see, the, the dog was so drunk it couldn't, it couldn't remember how to bark. So it said Bork. Yeah. He also was like, oh, Bruce, he's awesome. He's the best friend in the whole world. He's a really great bloke. Because yeah. his dog probably thought he was really nice. Well, you know, I don't think dogs would make great character witnesses because, yeah. No, they're pretty biased. They're not great with the old objectivity, are No, they? they're not really, are they? <laughs> My cat, on and the other hand, I love about would throw me under a bus in a second. For one tin yeah, of cat food. Yeah, you reckon he'd just be um, looking looking at the angles all out for yeah, himself? that's right. Thinking it might be a terrorist attack or maybe just the rapture, finally. Finally? The rapture today. It's about fucking time. I've been ready for this for ages. Yeah. Just hurry up and get it over with. Yeah. I'm going to take my clothes off now just so you don't have to slip me out of them as I fly up to the sky. Yeah, you're going to heaven, are you? I want to go to dog heaven, not people heaven. Oh, I don't yeah. want to 
have all the people who think they're so great. I just want the dogs. I'd like to be able to visit people, Heaven. Oh, by the way, I've got a new entry phrase for my junkie voice. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You never had a fucking phone. <laughs> Actually, that's perfect. Yeah. You never had nice. a fucking phone. You, you don't even have one. You never fucking had one, eh? <laughs> Since it had been on sold before Kerry was kidnapped, police figured the Fatara was much like the street I lived on in 1987, a dead end. We used to play cricket in it. Did you really? Was it kanga cricket or was it real cricket? What's kanga cricket? That's the one that they play with that yeah, yellow plastic set. Oh, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it, was it was big just, in the 80s. It was just a bin we used as the wickets. Yeah. And yeah. Pretty standard. Yeah. I don't know. Kanga cricket, that sounds like a reverse kanga. Reverse kanga cricket is the more fun version of it. That's when you poo all over the yellow plastic uh, wickets. Oh, no. Don't be reverse kangaring the wicket again, Barney. God. Ah, <laughs> uh, reverse kangaring the wicket. I had an EP called that. He said he spoke to his doctor on May 2nd and told him, laying down or sitting down are absolute bloody murder. The podcast? Oh, I heard it's a bit shit. There's a terrible sweary woman on it who doesn't understand how shameful it is for women to swear or do comedy. She sounds worse than the murderers she talks about. At least there's a middle-aged white guy there to keep everybody calm. I hear he's quite handsome. I recently read a book that I thought was the tits, so I figured I would share. <laughs> oh, my eye. <laughs> How did you do that, Tara? <laughs> oh, my other eye. <laughs> yeah, that, those sounds made it sound like one was definitely bigger than the other. Well, now I'm going to let out my third boob. Right up my nostril. <laughs> I reckon the fourth one will cause an earthquake. The book Lady Killer states the large rusted sign at the gate between Burrell's property and the Bungonia State Recreation Area bore an ominous warning. This park contains deep holes and shafts with concealed entrances. Please take care. Deep holes and shafts. And shafts, concealed entrances. Ooh, hey, baby. Sexy. Hey, baby. <laughs> mm, the, the park contains deep holes and shafts with concealed entrance. Please take care. They search cliffs, thickly wooded areas, and abseil down over 42 deep mine shafts. Hey, baby. Hey, baby, I'm abseiling down a shaft. <laughs> they, had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.